0: What kind of a
1: show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Ladies and
0: gentlemen. This is it. You expected... The Mystery... That's Daniel Craig in the teaser for one of the centerpieces of the fall movie season, Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery. Glass Onion is also the centerpiece presentation at this
1: year's Chicago International Film Festival, which opens on the 12th and runs through the 23rd of
0: this month. This week on the show, we share our picks for the most intriguing under the radar films playing the fest, plus a review of the new drama God's Creatures, starring Emily Watson. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Hard to believe, Josh, it's been seven years since we awarded our Golden Brick Award to the 2015 debut feature by Anna Rose Homer, The Fits*. We have been looking forward to a new film, from Homer ever since then, and she's back with co-director Celia Davis. The film is God's Creatures, an Ireland-set drama starring Emily Watson that's currently playing in limited release. You can also see it on demand. We're going to spend a few minutes on it later in the show, but this one resonated with you.
1: Yeah, I liked it quite a bit, and it it snuck up on me, I would mm-hmm. say. It's a very quiet movie, so afterwards, liked it, appreciated it, but it wasn't until I sat with it for a while and started writing about it that, um, yeah, It had uh, a little bit more power that I'm eager
0: to get into and talk about. Also, later in the show, podcast listeners will hear some recent feedback we got about the most quotable films from the 80s. This is my wheelhouse, Josh Larson.
1: You can still spit out these quotes.
0: Yeah, I remember every single inflection and can recall every line reading, and I will probably butcher Every one of those line readings as we get to those quotes here in a bit. We start, though, with the Chicago International Film Festival, the 58th annual Chicago International Film Festival. And we're going to highlight a few titles, Josh, that we're anticipating, some that we were aware of coming into the fest, some we didn't know about at all until we saw them in The Chicago Film Festival lineup. And we know that not all of our audience is going to have an opportunity to see these films at the festival, but many of them are coming to theaters or to screens near them soon. And the ones that maybe aren't, hopefully they can keep an eye out for and anticipate.
1: Yeah, it's a strong lineup, usually is. And I think we're going to start with some of those better known titles that folks are anticipating coming hopefully to their town. If you live in a fairly sized city and Chicago International Film Festival has some of those too. So should we jump into those first?
0: Yeah, let's do that. We each picked five titles here or so that if we were just going on pure excitement about the films themselves, no other factors at play, including whether or not they are going to be released in the next few weeks or month or so, which titles are we most eager to see? And I know that we've got two in common. So why don't we go ahead and highlight those? Now, one of them being the film we've already referenced at the top of the show, Glass Onion, the new Knives Out mystery from Ryan Johnson. We both can't wait to see.
1: Yeah. I mean, talk about being available. Netflix is going to have it, but uh, it'd be exciting to see it, of course, on the big screen as well. And I think for me, Adam, you know, it's Ryan Johnson is the appeal of course, but part of the fun of this trilogy as it goes on is going to be the rotating casts around Daniel Craig. And so here I'm interested to see how Kate Hudson, Catherine Hahn, Janelle Monáe,
0: Leslie Odom Jr., how those folks fit into the proceedings here with Glass Song In. I'm definitely curious about those performances as well, Josh. The other title we share is the new film from Sarah Pauly the wonderful director of Stories We Tell, one of my favorite films of its release here. Also, away from her, she's back with Women Talking. This is a special presentation. It's part of the Women in Cinema lineup. And another bonus here is that Sarah Polly will be on hand along with her cinematographer, Luc Montpellier. They're receiving a Visionary Award. And... If you just read the plot description for this film, this is an adaptation of a book by Miriam Taves I'm not familiar with, but it's such chilling subject matter. These women who are in an isolated religious community trying to come to terms with their faith when there has been a series of sexual assaults within that community. And you just look at the cast, Jesse Buckley, Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Frances McDormand, Ben Wishaw is also there take out Sarah Pauly, I want to see that movie with that ensemble. You add in Sarah Pauly as the filmmaker, and you know that it is going to be chilling, but it's going to be rendered sensitively and provocatively and thoughtfully.
1: Very eager to see what Polly does with this material. And speaking of, you know, at the top, we mentioned it's been a wait for Anna Rose Homer to make something new. Ten years, Adam, since Stories We Tell, Polly's personal documentary, so we are long overdue for a new film from her.
0: Yeah, Women Talking, Playing at the Music Box is part of the fest. That's on Thursday, October 20th. The centerpiece film of the fest is Tuesday, October 18th. So again, those are the two films we agree on. We know a lot of people are anticipating. What about a quick run-through of some other titles, Josh, that maybe are bigger-name films or relatively bigger name films at the fest that you are excited to check out. I've got The Whale on my list. Uh, I have to admit, though, the
1: last Darren Aronofsky film that really clicked with me was The Wrestler. So it's been a while. Still, I'm never going to miss one of his movies. And so I'm going to line up for The Whale. It sounds like, speaking of The Wrestler, he's maybe worked some Mickey Rourke magic this time around with Brendan Fraser. A lot of praise for his performance coming out of previous festivals. I'm also looking forward to one, Adam, that you've managed to already see, the new Park Chanook decision to leave. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned, I'm not sure if it was on the show or somewhere else about the use of color in this. Just tell me, don't tell me too much, but tell me, am I going to immediately know I'm watching a Park Channock movie as soon as this
0: thing begins? A thousand percent. Okay. Yes. Can't yeah. wait. And that was a commentary just between you, myself, and our producer, Sam. It wasn't over Slack. We were actually talking, I think, over Skype or something as we were preparing to record, and it just all blurs together sometimes. Josh, what we say on air and what we don't say <sighs> This is true on air. I think you will know immediately if you had no idea who the director was from the first few frames, you'd have a sense. And also in terms of the same themes and the overall mood and just the texture of the film, it does have that filmmaker's fingerprints all over it. What about a couple other titles, Josh?
1: So the other one is maybe not on the radar in terms of a filmmaker or the title even, but it probably is for listeners because I highlighted this in my fall movie preview, and it is Nanny. This is a potential golden brick candidate because it's the feature debut as a writer and director of Nikyatu Jusu. The story is about a Senegalese immigrant named Aisha who starts to work as a nanny for an affluent couple in New York City, and she gets involved in their lives while also experiencing these strange visions. This one, Adam, I'm very excited. I get a chance to check out at a festival press screening tomorrow. So that's Nanny. And then the others I had on my list were Women Talking, Decision to Leave, Glass Onion, and The Whale.
0: My three titles that haven't been mentioned yet are Broker. This is the new film. It's a spotlight film at the fest from Hirokazu Creatives playing Friday night, October 21st. And you read the description of it and it's got that little bitterness to it. Maybe not exactly the right word, but something almost a little bit harrowing about the subject matter. And yet, you know, in Corita's hands. It's also at times surely going to be sweet and perhaps even inspires you at times and makes you connected to these characters. The plot description is overwhelmed and unable to care for her new child. New mother, so young, stumbles into an unlikely partnership with two baby traffickers, so that's the harrowing part, to find the perfect and well-paying parents for her infant in this heartbreaking human story of found family. And human stories... And perhaps even Human Stories of Found Families seems to kind of be the running theme through a lot of Coreta's work. Certainly his recent wonderful film Shoplifters from, I think, 2018 or 2019. Another big film at the fest, it's in fact the closing night film, Noah Baumbach. You know, I've been a big fan of his recent work, Josh, and his film White Noise, an adaptation of the Don DeLillo novel, is the film that's wrapping up the festival Bomback again, with his wonderful collaborator on Marriage Story, Adam Driver, and maybe the only other performer slash filmmaker on the planet I appreciate more than Adam Driver is Greta Gerwig plays his wife in the film. I haven't read the DeLillo, don't know anything about the story. All I need to know is that it's bound back and it's got Driver and Gerwig in it.
1: Yeah, I'm cooler on Back than you are, but give me that cast. He's always got a strong cast, for sure.
0: The other film I'm going to call out here, Josh, that is a special presentation at SIF is the new one from Martin McDonough. We've talked about it a little bit on the show, I think, as part of our fall movie preview. McDonough, the filmmaker behind In Bruges, and yes, Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. He has reunited that In Bruges cast Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, and that triumvirate of those two actors along with that writer-director is certainly enough for me.
1: And that's one that I think is opening shortly after the festival ends as well, right? So hopefully we'll get to it on the show coming up here.
0: Yeah, that is our plan. It actually opens on October 21st in theaters. It's playing at the festival on the 19th. So if I was really being a stickler here and I was saying, Hey, you've got to balance your time. You've got to budget your time and figure out what you're going to see at the fest. I might actually recommend you don't see The Banshees of Innisfarin because surely there are other titles that you're not going to see right away, like this one. But again, just in terms of pure excitement to see, it had to be on my list.
1: So, should we get to some of those under the radar ones that we would suggest people prioritize?
0: Yeah, let's do that. That's always kind of been our mission here on Film Spotting. Yes, we talk about a lot of. Big films, but we also always want to highlight maybe underseen films, or in this case, films that may not be getting quite as much attention. They're titles that might slip by you if you're just looking at the roster, and you see some of those names like McDonough and Ryan Johnson and Sarah Pauli and Hirokazu Koreeda. These are some films that stood out to us. Josh, give me a few of your titles.
1: Well, this first one I want to mention. Was put on my radar by other critics who have seen it at previous festival and have just given it raves. The title is After Sun, and it's the feature debut of a Scottish filmmaker, Charlotte Wells. The story here is about a young woman reflecting on a holiday she took with her father 20 years earlier to Turkey. So sounds intriguing. Always interesting to check out the work of a new filmmaker, but again, just the overwhelming raves that After Sun has been getting is why I kind of circled it and thought, I hope that shows up at the Chicago Fest. That might be the perfect time to catch it. There is going to be one screening that's on October 18 at 545 at River East. Now, here's one I hadn't heard of at all, Adam, until I started digging into the schedule. Elise, A L I S. It's an experimental documentary from mm. Columbia. And here's the festival description. When the residents of a Colombian youth shelter are asked to imagine a fellow adolescent, Elise emerges as an avatar for their own experiences. So again, that's all I know about it. But right away, I started thinking about, I'm sure you remember Cleo Barnard's The Arbor, which was of course I do. also a documentary involving testimony and an imaginative play to get at the truth of difficult experiences. I also thought of last year's Procession the documentary that chronicled drama Mm -hmm. therapy employed by survivors of church sexual abuse. So heavy inventive stuff, it seems, in all three of these titles. Maybe Alice is doing something entirely different, but it absolutely looks intriguing to me. So there are going to be two festival screenings for this, October 20 and October 21. Different locations. Siskel will have it on the 20th and then River East on the 21st.
0: Yeah, both of those were on my list as honorable mentions, Elise being one that just from that description immediately catches your attention. And those are great call-outs in terms of both Procession, I believe Robert Greene, the filmmaker behind that film, and The Arbor, Cleo Barnard, a 2011, I think, Golden Brick winner here on film spotting. So one of my favorite films of the past decade or so. You actually highlighted a film as on your radar that for me was off the radar until I got that fest booklet. And that is Nanny with Anna Diop, who's actually getting recognized at the festival with the Rising Star Award. And another one that I thought might grab you a little bit, Josh, if you noticed it, is a documentary I always love to find interesting, compelling new docs at film festivals, and there's one called The Natural History of Destruction, which is from a filmmaker named Sergei Losnitsa. And the reason why I thought it might resonate with you a little bit is on a recent bonus episode we did just for our film spotting family members, we looked ahead with our producer, Sam, at potential future film spotting marathons, and one of the categories we sometimes do is different regional cinemas that we're not too familiar with. You mentioned perhaps focusing on Ukrainian cinema and kind of not even knowing where to start or even how rich the topic might be. And here you've got a filmmaker in Loshnitsa who is Ukrainian raised, and he's crafting the entire film from archival footage from World War II that, according to the film festival description, says mounts a harrowing critique of the killing of civilian populations during wartime. So Obviously, incredibly timely, potentially very powerful, potentially a tough watch, but also maybe a necessary watch, the natural history of destruction.
1: Good eye, Adam. It didn't make my list, but I did have it as an honorable mention for those reasons. So, yeah, it looks like it it could be a tough one. But if you're looking to dip your toes in Ukrainian cinema, maybe a place to start. All right. I've got one that you mentioned on this list we flipped a little bit here i put the koreada on my Under the radar, I do think still he's a filmmaker that, yes, is a name in some circles, but deserves way more attention that he's gotten. So Broker, his new film, uh, is on my list here. And one thing that's interesting, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, Adam, um, or if you went by quickly, but, you know, Korea from Japan, he's working with Korea's Song Kang-ho in the cast here. So the star of The Host, star of Parasite. One of the most wonderful actors we have working right now in terms of balancing seriousness and goofiness and empathy. And so I'm very curious to see how that team up works with Broker. Here's one that hasn't come up yet that I'll mention it's RMN. And let me give you a confession with this one because sometimes I lose touch with a foreign language filmmaker, even if I've been riveted by one of their Mm. earlier films, the years pass, maybe uh, a title that comes out later doesn't get quite as much attention as an earlier one. And I fail to do my duty and just keep up with this really talented filmmaker. Well, that's what's happened with Christian Munju, who I discovered with four months, three weeks and two days back in 2007, that deeply arresting film, made waves around the world. I was shaken by his follow-up as well in 2012, Beyond the Hills. Still, never saw 2016's graduation, and now he does have another film that I need to put on my watch list, R.M.N. Here's the description from the festival program. A rural Transylvanian village is pushed to its breaking point by anger and xenophobia in this edge-of-your-seat small-town thriller. So, based on what I have seen from Anju, seems like a match with his sensibility. Another very challenging watch, I'm sure, but deeply artistic as well, um, based on what I've seen. So I'm looking at that, which is showing October 13 and October 14, both of those screenings at River East.
0: R.M.N. also on my list, Josh, and I could have said everything that you did. I'd even seen his entry. I think it's an omnibus film, if I'm remembering correctly, 2009's Tales from the Golden Age. Yeah, it is. the Toronto Film Festival. He made one of those films. And then, of course, before that, knew him from four months, three weeks, and two days. We both were fans of Beyond the Hills. And then, somewhat inexplicably, we didn't make time for graduation, neither of us seeing it or reviewing it here on the show. But his name, that plot summary really stood out to me when looking over the lineup and then an added bonus with RMN that you didn't mention is that Christian Munju is going to be a special guest at the festival. That's so right. I'm guessing a Q&A with him, probably a little intro and something after the film. The other title I'm going to mention here Josh, I'll read you the plot description and then I'll tell you the two actors who are playing these two title roles. And you'll really understand. Oh, I why know where you're going. List. You know where I'm going, don't you? Okay. <laughs> yes. Raymond and Ray follows half brothers, Raymond and Ray, who have lived in the shadow of a terrible father. Somehow they still each have a sense of humor and his funeral is a chance for them to reinvent themselves. There's anger. There's pain. There's folly. There might be love. And there's definitely grave digging. This is the new one from Rodrigo Garcia, who's made a bunch of films like Albert Knobs and Mother and Child. He also made Last Days in the Desert with Ewan McGregor, and Ewan McGregor is Raymond. The big selling point for me, though, is film spotting favorite as Ray, Ethan Hawke. That's the drawing card for me.
1: Are you sure you didn't start a GoFundMe like three, four years ago just to do something to get these two together? And that's how this showed up?
0: I mean, I might have. Whatever the case, I'm glad it's happening, and I'm glad I'm going to get to see it here at the Chicago International Film Festival. That leaves us with one title each that is maybe a little bit off the beaten path, a smaller film that might get overlooked at the film festival, and we're saying, you shouldn't. What's yours? Well, this one
1: has a fairly well-known actor, but I still think it's flying under the radar, and that is Vicky Creeps starring in Corsage. Maybe it's just because I've had movie queens on the mind with our recent top five, Adam, but I'm very intrigued by the idea of Creeps playing Empress Elizabeth. Of Austria. So this is in the 1870s, but at least in the film festival program, it is being billed as an unconventional costume drama. So maybe something a little different than we might immediately think of when we hear about a story like this. And of course, Creeps, you know, since showing up at least on my radar with a phantom thread has not been given enough chances to do movies of that quality of that stature so very intrigued to see her at the center of a movie as well with corsage this is playing on october 15 and
0: october 16 at river east my final pick is from a filmmaker who i've been a fan of ever since we were exposed to his work during our contemporary iranian cinema marathon a few years back in the film is No Bears. It's in the international competition. That filmmaker is Jafar Panahi. And he is currently in jail. The Iranian government has put him in jail. And they had previously banned him from making movies, put him on house arrest. That didn't stop him from making the film This Is Not a Film, which we reviewed on the show. I think that got smuggled out of the country somehow and ended up playing at film festivals, but basically stuck inside his home, Found a way to make this reflexive personal vision come to life. And he's got another one just like that, where he's playing a fictionalized version of himself who is barred from leaving Iran and he's supervising a film shoot. It is, of course, going to be about things like, according to the description, freedom, oppression, and cinema itself. You know. I'm ready to watch any film that's meta textual. You put that in your description. I just do a control F and look for the word meta. And that's my list. Usually easy way to do it. Yeah. But considering the circumstances he currently finds himself in the absurd circumstances he finds himself in and the inventiveness and the compulsion he exhibits to continue to make films to not be silenced no matter what. Is remarkable. I certainly want to encourage that. If the only thing I can do is go see this film, I'm going to go see this film. It's playing the 17th and the 20th at the fest.
1: Yeah, this was on my honorable mentions list as well. Definitely one you should take advantage of seeing if you can.
0: Speaking of some of those additional titles and meta movies, I could have done an entire top five list that falls into that category of movies about the creative process. And I'm probably not including a few here. But in addition to No Bears, you've got Hong Sang Su's The Novelist film playing, which is about a writer who meets a film director. There you go. You've got a documentary from Chris Smith called Senior that's about Robert Downey Sr. and his influential counterculture films in the 60s and 70s. There's If These Walls Could Sing, a documentary by Mary McCartney that's about abbey road studios where of course her father so famously made a bunch of great music with the beatles and i know that there are others that fall into this category josh but i thought i'd go ahead and keep the segment a little shorter Thank you. I think
1: I think we all appreciate that. But yeah, I th- also 90 features I think are going to be at the fest, so no surprise that you're able to find a handful under that theme and in addition to that 60 short films as well. So, a very rich program to choose from.
0: Another one I'll throw in last minute here. Not quite sure it falls into the artist or creative process category, though it is about a writer. We've got a new one from Stephen Frears with my guy Steve Coogan. Sally Hawkins It's called The Last King, and it's apparently based on a true story of a middle-aged writer who goes about trying to discover the truth about King Richard III, that infamous Shakespearean and real-life figure's life and death. So, The Lost King is another one that I've thrown on my list here, Josh. As you said, 90 titles, over 90 titles, a lot to see at the festival, a lot of films to write down and keep in mind if they may be playing near you or available on demand, hopefully at some point in the near future. Of course, you don't actually have to have a pen and paper and be jotting all of these down because you can find the complete list of every film we've mentioned that we're anticipating at the fest Over at filmspotting.net, just click on Lists. The 58th Annual Chicago International Film Festival opens on the 12th and runs through the 23rd. More info is at chicagofilmfestival.org. Human
1: sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. It's a good one. All of that and more when we come back to share listener feedback on the most quotable 1980s movies. Plus, the Fitz director Anna Rose Homer goes from a Cincinnati community center to a small fishing village with her sophomore film, God's Creatures. Stay with us.
0: Well, I was born to come in a cabin on a hill in butcher holler we were poor but we had love that's the one thing my daddy made sure of he shoveled coal to make a poor man's
1: He got very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means.
0: Tough to suggest what quote to play there from The Princess Bride when there are so many great quotes from that film. And I'm not even sure that's my favorite one, but the thing about quotes for me is that they can't just be great lines, Josh. They have to be quotes that are emblazoned on my brain to the point where if a circumstance somewhat remotely like the one in the film comes up in my daily life, I can only think to use that line. And I just used that line maybe 24 hours ago with my wife. Don't remember the exact circumstances, but Someone misused some phrase, and I said to Sarah, I don't think that means what he thinks it means.
1: (laughs) That that one even I, Adam, could pull right away. I I think, yeah, we got a good one
0: there. So why are we talking about quotable movies and talking about 80s movies specifically? Well, we had a contest recently on the show giving away some free digital passes to see the new Confess Fletch with John Hamm. That took us back to Fletch from the 80s, a film that I've long contended is the most quotable movie from the 80s. Great idea by Sam, our producer. He said listeners have to submit what they think the most quotable movie of the 80s is, and they could say Fletch or they could go in a different direction, of course, and many people did. In fact, didn't get a ton of Fletch entries, Josh, but The Princess Bride was right there. Near the top, James from Belleville, Illinois, writes in, Personally, I don't think there is any way Fletch is the most quotable comedy of the 80s because it doesn't have enough reach, whether because of Chevy Chase or some other reason. It seems like Fletch isn't nearly as beloved by younger audiences who weren't around, at least filmically, near the time of its release. Instead, as one of those 90s kids, Josh Tisks, you don't ever do that, Josh. (laughs) No. I'd say... That movie is The Princess Bride. Those who saw it back in the day and those who see it now love it and quote it just the same. And I feel like the latter camp is growing far more than for Fletch. And I think, Adam, I danced to The Princess Bride at my wedding. Kempenar, would know this is the right answer. Keep up the great work. And here goes James. Have fun storming the castle.
1: <laughs> I think I know where that's from. Here's another vote for The Princess Bride from Tim in Denver. The correct answer for the most quotable movie from the 80s. Yeah. The Princess Bride runner up, though for tim christmas vacation he says the most quoted in my household
0: because we watch it every year well yeah that'll do it dave in boston concurs. I will preface my entry here with the fact that I was born in 86, so I'm very much what you guys would consider a 90s kid looking back on 80s movies from a bit of a distance. I will also say that while I love the original Fletch and still crack up at it anytime I see the full movie or clips, I have to go with a different Chevy Chase movie from the decade as my pick. It is Christmas Vacation. I'd seen it a few times over the years and always enjoyed it, but in the last five years or so, my now brother-in-law introduced my wife and I to one of his yearly holiday traditions, watch Christmas Vacation on Thanksgiving night. It's the perfect movie to get in the holiday spirit after you've had your fill of Thanksgiving food and beverages, and it makes me laugh every year now. I'm having trouble even picking one line from it to send in this email, but I'll just go with the classic Clark. Worse? How could things get any worse? Take a look around you, Ellen. We're at the threshold of hell. (laughs) I have a little confession. As big of a fan as I am of 80s Chevy Chase movies, I've seen Christmas Vacation. Okay, I think it's funny, but I was such a fan of the original National Lampoon's vacation. And then I still really liked European vacation. And by the time we got to Christmas vacation, I was, I was, I guess, vacationed out a little bit, Josh.
1: You were too mature. Were you already Mm. becoming a snob? Is that what maybe was happening? No, No, not quite. Okay. (laughs) Here's one from Tina Luke in Charlotte, North Carolina, placing a vote for, well, we'll see if folks can tell or recognize this. I'm going to murder it because I have seen this movie once in the eighties and not since, but here we go. Who has been putting out their cools on my floor? I'm sure that's nowhere close to how it sounded in trading places. But anyways, that is Tina's vote. And she says here, she's maybe now in North Carolina, but originally from Philly. So yeah, I've memorized this
0: movie. So Tina made me feel bad when I read this one, Josh, because I've seen trading places almost as many times as tina maybe not as many not from philly but that line is totally unknown to me oh boy not one of the ones that me and my buddies quoted incessantly in the 80s i now need to go back and watch trading places
1: give me a trading places what what's a trading places
0: looking good feeling good lewis you know there's a bunch of them like that come (laughs) on this is the magic Bryant Pleasant Cottrell says, there's only one answer here, and I don't even need to say the name of the movie, just a quote, just a legendary quote. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Immortal words, obviously. It's the Blues Brothers. Rawhide, Brian says.
1: <laughs> Love it. David Hoffman in Queen says, as for 80s comedies, my most quotable is absolutely Top Secret. I know a little German. He's right over there. There's a schnauzer in my Wiener Schnitzel
0: latrine. Yeah, you know, out of context. Hoping people (laughs) enjoy that work. (laughs) (laughs) Confession: top secret. As much as I love '80s Val Kilmer movies, and oh, that's going to come up in a moment. Never seen the entire film.
1: Mm, That's a good one. I remember watching that one on repeat on the old VHS.
0: Yeah. Josh Ashenmiller in L.A. says, I'm deciding what to make of your challenge to come up with a more quotable 80s comedy than Fletch. Well, I can make it into a hat or a brooch or a pterodactyl. Surely you will admit that Airplane is more quotable than Fletch, and I will stop calling you Shirley. Over, under, Roger, Roger, what's our vector victor? Do we have Clarence Clarence? P.S., Josh adds, looks like I picked the wrong week to stop (laughs) sniffing glue. I think that last one is my favorite. I mean, he's making... He's making a compelling case for Airplane, and I think I put those together properly. I may not have seen Top Secret, but isn't that the same crew behind both films? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Zucker, Zucker, Abraham Zucker, right? That's
1: right. Okay. Here's Tom Kuzmarski's For volume, not to mention transcendental hilarity, the 80s comedy with the most quotable lines is and always will be Caddyshack. Every scene, practically every character, has a line that is funny, memorable, and has become a classic. There can be no doubt that Caddyshack is the most quotable film from the '80s, if not the most quotable of all time. I know this might be hard to hear. We all love and cherish different things in the world. What tickles our funny bones is subjective and very personal. Caddyshack knows and has this piece of enduring wisdom: "We have a pool and a pond.
0: The pond would be good be good for you." Yeah, maybe my favorite line in Caddyshack. Brett Fisher in Portland, Oregon says, oh, Billy, Billy, Billy. This is a big one, (laughs) Billy. You're a tremendous slouch if you think Caddyshack is a less quotable 80s comedy than Fletch. However, Fletch is by far the second most quotable, so you got that going for you, which is nice. I mean, that one is hard to beat. How about a fresca to celebrate? Because you ain't getting no Coke. Gunga galunga. Gungala gungala. I am so glad you took that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Here's the thing. (laughs) Caddyshack is up there. I don't know if it's in my top five. It's in the top 10 for sure, 80s quotable movies. And it was the single most often entered film in this contest. Okay, It did come up the most, Josh.
1: That is not where Ross Bratton went, however. I've seen Fletch a couple times and like it, but my answer happens to be a film that is one of my personal all-time favorite movies. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I've seen the film numerous times, and it's one that I quote with and to friends all the time. So many times in my life, I find myself just quoting random lines from that movie, and numerous quotes and moments are running through my head even as I type this. I hope Ross has recovered by now. Bueller? 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 Bueller?
0: Um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious.
1: Thank you, Simone.
0: No problem whatsoever. Fry? It's a great one. It really is. Finally, David L. Williams at Belfont, PA, says all of this. Well, sort of. I was thinking of the immortal words of Socrates who said, I drank what? I want to see more of you around the lab. Fine. I'll gain weight. All of my filth is in alphabetical order. This, for instance, is under H for toy. Did you know there's a guy living in our closet? You've seen him too? Who is he? Hollyfeld. Why does he keep going in our closet? Why do you keep going in our closet? To get my clothes. But that's not why he goes in there. Of course not. He's twice your size. Your clothes would never fit him. Have you ever seen a body like this before in your life? She happens to be my daughter. Oh, then I guess you have. (laughs) I'm not saying Real Genius is a great film. David writes, but boy, is it quotable.
1: How about that? We got one, two, three, four, five massacre theaters for the price of one.
0: (laughs) Real genius is my number two or number three. I'm spoiling the eventual list we're going to do. That's the 80s Val Kilmer movie. He's in almost all of those lines. You'll rue the day. Rue the day? Who talks like that? I mean, you just cannot beat real genius. I could go... On and on for the rest of the show, Josh, just quoting movies. And here's the thing that I'm really going to prove my bona fides with. David will appreciate this. I know many of our 80s kids will. Hey, I don't that think anybody's first, doubting you at this point. Okay. That first line, <laughs> I was thinking of the immortal words of Socrates who said, I drank what? Back when I was in college, when I was an undergrad at Grinnell, me and my buddy Jason would play at the coffee house on campus, little acoustic duo he's a singer, I'm a guitar player, so we'd play our tunes. Both kids of the 80s love all of these movies, including and especially Real Genius. And the name of our little coffee house duo was, I even still have a VHS tape with a recording of the performance that I found the other day. The name of that duo was The Immortal Words of Socrates.
1: I think we got to do another contest and the winner, quotable movies of the 90s or something like that, they get that VHS tape to watch and enjoy.
0: Mm, You know what? I could digitize that. I'd share it. We sounded pretty good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you've got feedback for us on most quotable 80s movies, you can still send it along. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll close this out with this. I was so taken and so enjoyed going on this nostalgia trip, reading all of these quotes that I suggested to you, Josh, and to Sam that we should devote not just one top five, but maybe multiple top fives to this idea of most quotable movies. Now, Sam and I have already done that. We did it in the first year of the show, I think, but that was 100 years ago. And why not do it not just from the 80s, but let's look at the most quotable movies from the 90s, maybe even the 2000s, the 2010s. Now, I know that none of us, or at least I'm going to hypothesize that none of us quote movies now in our older middle-aged years the way we might have back when we were in college or high school or grade school that's why this 80s segment here is so much fun but I think that there are enough great films from these recent decades that stand out that I have incorporated lines from into my everyday life that it's worth doing. I think we could do a whole month's worth of top fives, just one a week, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. Like, I'll give you one example, Josh. Maybe the film I actually quote the most still to this day is from the 90s, and it's Pulp Fiction because there are so many moments in your life where someone says something that, is really kind of out there, and you go, that's a bold statement. No one knows you're quoting Pulp Fiction, but you just say, you can't help it. That's a bold statement. Or from the same character, I think in the same scene, when someone impresses you with their knowledge about something, you say, check out the big brains on Brad. I do that all the time.
1: (laughs) I was thinking about taking uh, March 2023 off, so that might be a great time to plan your <laughs> well, your wall-to-wall
0: that. month of quotable movies top fives. So go ahead and explain it, Josh, because you didn't want to completely rain on my parade. I appreciate that you didn't want to say, Adam, this is just a terrible idea, because I think you know deep down it's not a terrible idea, but it might be a terrible idea for you. You told us something about the way you're wired that is not the same way I'm wired or Sam is wired, or it would seem at least some segment of our audience is wired.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I did this in middle school. I mean, as we're reading some of these, I remember blues brothers in particular, um, you know, those lines we'd toss back and forth, but um, it's been a long time (laughs) since I've thought this way. And um, I, I, I do have concerns about how far we could push it. I mean, it's, I'm glad you're excited. It takes enthusiasm about a topic, but um, a month straight might be a little much. Uh, but that's just me. That's just me.
0: Okay. We will have to consult the newly formed Film Spotting Advisory Board and see if they want to weigh in. Yes. Override your vote there, Josh. We appreciate all the great feedback we got next week. On film spotting, the latest from a director who's been keeping us waiting even longer than Anna Rose Holmer and Sarah Polly, Todd Field. His new film was *Tar*. It's earned rapturous reviews from screenings at Venice and the New York Film Festivals. Stars Kate Blanchett as an acclaimed composer and conductor, and it opens in limited release, including here in Chicago next weekend. I have already had a chance to see this film, and there's going to be a lot to talk about it. Did not disappoint, Josh.
1: Good to hear. It's on the docket for me on Monday, so can't wait for that. Now, not receiving rapturous reviews so far is Amsterdam. Director David O. Russell's latest. This is a 30-set crime caper. Apparently a cast of thousands
0: in yeah, this We don't thing. have time for you to list all of the members of this cast. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a couple. Christian Bale,
1: Margot Robbie, John David Washington, Chris Rock, Robert De Niro, Anya Taylor-Joy, Zoe Saldana. I'll, I'll just stop there, but trust me, there's about eight more names. Amsterdam does open in wide release this weekend. Sam reports over on Metacritic only a score of 49. So mm-hmm. the question has been thrown out by Sam. Do we see and review Ruben Oslund's Palme d'Or winning Triangle of Sadness instead? We are going to have Tar, as you mentioned. So this would be another film we're talking about. Triangle of Sadness is opening, but only in limited release this weekend. So I'm a, this is another place where we differ. Like if there's a movie that I'm interested in, and it's a major filmmaker you know i want to be part of the conversation so i'm not necessarily like thrown off by early bad reviews sure it's disappointing it'd be more exciting if they were raves but i kind of want to see for myself i know sometimes sam at least likes to give us a chance which i understand to talk about something we have maybe more of an opportunity to praise but where are you at with this question
0: Yeah, I've avoided answering because I don't really know where I stand. I actually was leaning initially towards reviewing Triangle of Sadness anyway. It's the film of the two I'm most eager to see. If I could only pick one, I would definitely see Triangle of Sadness. The good thing is I don't have to only pick one. I plan to see both films. And I have a feeling we're going to talk about both films at some point on the show. It's just a matter of when and what exactly we want to do next week. So I think as we're taping this, we're both seeing Amsterdam or planning to see Amsterdam tomorrow. So let's probably just stick with the plan. Sounds good to me. Okay. Next week, we will also have results from the current film spotting poll, which asks you to choose one Sam's most frustrating deeply flawed film spotting poll ever. And in this case, it's flawed because he's posing it. Do you go with Kate Blanchett or Tilda Swinton? That's the choice. You can only go with one. Not very complicated yet.
1: Extremely difficult.
0: Yeah. Supporting our dubious claim that these two great actors are a good pairing for a poll like this listener. Will Krischke writes, I'm not saying they're the same person, but has anyone ever seen Kate Blanchett and Tilda Swinton in a room together suspicious. I mean, they were, as you now recall, Josh, in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button together. So does that ruin Will's point? Yeah, I think there's the proof, Will. What more do you need? E- ever since I saw this, though, in our notes, I've been thinking about Tar starring Tilda Swinton. Oh, no. I don't need someone different than <laughs> Kate Blanchett in that role at all, but I've been imagining in my head what Tilda Swinton would do with it. And I'm not saying she'd even do anything dramatically different. I just wish I could see both of those films. And it, it highlights what makes this poll so frustrating because they're both so talented and you really can see either of them doing the other person's role interchangeably. And they would, of course, be different. I'm Mm -hmm. not suggesting. No, I got you. They would be the same, but they wouldn't be lacking in quality in any way. And sometimes when you compare stars and maybe Blanchett and Tilda Swinton don't fall into that same category as if we were talking about two big name Hollywood stars who are a little bit more interchangeable. These are both performers who can be character actors and often have been. You can sometimes see how, oh, that that actor could never play that actor's part and vice versa. Here, I really think you could switch them up and they would always be fascinating.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I'm trying to, as you're talking, think of a counterpoint to that one where, uh, is it maybe in a vocal performance? We talked about them both doing, um, you know, Swinton, at least in Isle of Dogs, right, is uh, the vocal performance. I'm wondering if they do have distinct voices, is what I'm getting at, not just the accents, their natural accents where they're from, but even manners of vocal presentation. That's one thing where it might
0: be hard to imagine them switching. Yeah, both have just an incredible sense of gravitas, though, to whatever they, yeah, gravitas though to whatever film they're doing, and maybe it's that gravitas that I'm thinking about in particular with a movie like Tar and that character. That would be so fascinating to see Swinton's take on it. This is the last call for our live event, little mini live event coming up this Sunday, October 9th in Iowa City. Film scene, great theater there. It's their Refocus Film Festival. It's all about adaptations. And Sam and I are going to team up. We're going to do a live recording. We're going to talk about some of our recent favorite adaptations and yes we will definitely be talking a little bit about Shakespeare in particular one film that it seems no one likes but us Josh
1: here's your chance to win over the crowd
0: make some converts yeah we're definitely going to try we'll just leave that a mystery you'll have to tune in Either show up live this Sunday in Iowa City or, you know, we'll probably play it here on an upcoming episode. You can hear which Shakespeare we are referencing there. That Refocus Film Festival runs October 6th through the 9th, over 26 films and performances over the four days. Our talk, 4 p.m. on the 9th, refocusfilmfestival.org. A couple weekends after that,
1: Adam, I will be hosting an online event. This is Saturday, October 22. It's going to be at 2 p.m. Central. Transcendent Spielberg for the TC Movie Club. So we're going to be looking for signs of transcendence in Spielberg's films. We'll definitely touch on Close Encounters, E.T., AI artificial intelligence. I also took another look at Always for this and would like to talk about that a little bit as well. If you want to join us on October 22, again, it's online. Just sign up at thinkchristian.net slash movie club and then we'll shoot you an invite with the meeting link. We're going to do this via Zoom. I've also got a video essay up at the Think Christian YouTube channel to start. The Thinking About Transcendent Spielberg. So you can find that by going to YouTube, search for Think Christian. And again, to join the movie club for this event and other quarterly ones we do, go to thinkchristian.net slash movie club.
0: This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, looking at cinema's present via its past, Tasha, Keith, Scott, and Genevieve are talking about Confess Fletch in relation to Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. It's part of their unvarnished sleuth Pairing, more info at nextpictureshow.net. Now, I know that we have both seen Confess Fletch. Oh, boy. I saw your star rating. I think you like it a little less than me, but not that much less than me. Really? Yeah, I was actually kind of disappointed with it. I know Scott and a lot of critics have really been taken with it, and I can understand why. But I read your blurb, and your reasons for disliking it are a little bit different than mine. My big thing is I just find... The central mystery, so not compelling. Well, I would it doesn't ag- pay off in any way.
1: Yeah, I would. I would agree with that. For me, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm gonna sound like the biggest Scrooge on the show, but I don't know if it's again the humor that worked for me when I was in middle school. Being transferred now is just. Here's the weird thing, though. That stuff that struck me as a middle schooler as kind of outrageous and being rebellious, you know, Fletch was giving it to the—now I'm watching it as a middle-aged guy, and this thing seems stuffed with dead-on-arrival dad jokes. It was just dad joke after dad joke, and I do wonder if I watch Fletch again, would I— Would it be the same thing? Would it hit me the same way? But in middle school, I thought these jokes were, you know, just the freshest stuff ever. I don't know. I don't think I'm going to go and revisit Fletch to find out. But yeah, really surprised. We popped this in on a Saturday night, kind of last minute, popped it on, streamed it, and we're looking for something funny. And all I had heard was how delightful it was. Um, I love that John Hamm is doing something like this. I think he's a very funny actor, but it was a rough go for me.
0: I'm sure we don't mean to disparage the pairing here on The Next Picture Show, but man, putting any film up against Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye is tough competition. Agreed. For sure. One of the all-time greats. Again, The Next Picture Show, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Time now for some Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene.
0: Oh, God. you. Dirty little liar. I'm sorry, I can explain. Oh, explain how you forgot to invite us to your party? Janice, I cannot stop this car. I have a curfew. You know I couldn't invite you. I had to pretend to be plastic. <laughs> Buddy, you're not pretending anymore. You're plastic. Cold, shiny, hard plastic. Curfew, 1 AM. It is now 110. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness? You know what? You're the one who made me like this so you could use me for your eighth grade revenge. God, see, see. Me and Regina George know we're mean. You try to act like you're so innocent. Like, oh, I used to live in Africa with all the little birdies and the little monkeys. You know what? It's not my fault you're like in love with me or something. What? Oh, no, she did not.
1: That was Lizzie Kaplan and Lindsay Lohan in 2004's Mean Girls, written by Tina Fey and Rosalind Wiseman directed by Mark Waters. A couple weeks back, along with that massacre, Adam and I shared our top five movie queens, along with a review of The Woman King. So why that scene from Mean Girls?
0: Our listeners did really well here, Josh, as they always do. Michael Roche in New York. New York says Regina George, the character whose famous name you wisely altered, is referred to in the film as the Queen Bee, tying it to the movie Queen's theme. Regina George was played by Rachel McAdams, one of the stars of Game Night, one of the films considered in your film spotting poll of best comedies of the last 10 years even giving that film's best line delivery oh no he died (laughs) see there's a line adam that sticks with me i like that it's a good one all
1: right here's rebecca jalen from i like bravo sweden sure okay apologies apologies rebecca the movie is based on the book queen bees and wannabes and is written by and stars the queen that is tina fey The main character, Katie, who grew up in Africa where the woman king is set, is played by Lindsay Lohan, who covered David Bowie's changes on the soundtrack to Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen. Wow. Wow.
0: I know, right? I talked about Moon Age Daydream, the new Brett Morgan doc about Bowie, and Rebecca's pulling that out. Now, here's the only problem with, oh, no, he died. How often do you get a chance to incorporate that into everyday conversation, Josh?
1: Let's hope not very often.
0: Here's Ken Link in Flagstaff, Arizona. Lindsay Lohan portrayed Cleopatra's Elizabeth Taylor in the film Liz and Dick, in which she very capably played a person wearing violet contact lenses. Cleopatra, on your list of favorite movie queens finally the father of lohan's character is played by character actor neil flynn who as far as i know may be a descendant of the private lives of elizabeth and essex lead errol flynn heck as far as i know i may be a descendant of the private lives of elizabeth and essex lead errol flynn that dude got around okay ken (laughs) not sure you can argue with ken's logic there now there is one other beautifully serendipitous connection between our show And this choice of Mean Girls for Massacre Theater. And I say beautifully serendipitous because I'm going to bet my mortgage that Sam had no idea when he picked it that it was, in fact, going to be a connection. But I knew it, and I was curious if anybody else would catch it. And for a long time, I didn't think anybody was going to call it out, Josh. I didn't figure you'd get it either, but I'm going to show my Mean Girl bona fides now because... Me and two listeners had it on the brain. Isabel Bishop in St. Louis, Beth in Towson, Maryland, Towson, Maryland, I apologize, Beth. Also acknowledge the timing of this scene. The deadline to submit your entries, Josh, was yesterday as we're recording this. So just real quick, humor me. Ask me, ask me what day Monday was. What day was Monday?
1: It's October 3rd.
0: One of the most famous lines from Mean Girls, it's October 3rd. How about that? There's no way. There's no way Sam knew it would line up that he, I well. think
1: he had that one. He had the calendar mapped out years ago, just waiting for the stars right. to align and finding a way to pick that scene.
0: I'd like to believe that. We do have a brimming, brimming film spotting hat. Lots of love for Mean Girls out there, Josh. Reach in. Take out this week's winner. Our winner is Jeremiah Murphy from Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh, it's more like Worcester. Wooster. Wooster. I,
1: I thought I had it right. Wooster. I was like, I think I know this one. Okay. The following pronunciation is brought to you by PronounceNames.com.
0: Wooster. We both butchered it. Congratulations, Jeremiah. Hopefully, we got that right. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t shirt. Dracula requires presence. It's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera. Time for a new edition of Massacre Theater. And it's been a while, Josh, since we've done a funny accents that really shouldn't be funny edition of Massacre Theater. But here we are. Yeah,
1: this is going to be rough. Uh, And... I'm glad you're taking... You've been on a roll with those quotable oh, lines. Yeah, I'm you warmed know. up. You're ready to go. You're taking on the brunt of this scene. I'm very eager to see how it works for you.
0: Mm, thank you for that. You're setting me up to fail, and that's probably fair. This should be an earmuffs edition of Massacre Theater, which saying that alone probably gives people a little bit of a hint of yes. what it might be from. Of course, tying in with a topic on this week's show, or maybe, as usual, multiple topics, whether we thought of them in advance or not. We are going to make it family-friendly and, in the process, ruin the script, but then it's not called Massacre Theater for nothing. We've also changed the names here to maybe make it just a little less obvious, Josh.
1: Yeah. I love what Sam did on that front.
0: Okay. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Sure. And? action moody stop messing about please pick up your gun i know i'm gonna beat you anyway because you're tom i'm totally in your debt things that have gone between us in the past i love you unreservedly for all that what for your integrity for your honor i love you the boy had to be let go the boy had to be given a chance and to do that i had to say f you and f what i owe you and if everything has gone on between us, and that's what I had to do, but I'm not fighting you, and I accept totally everything you're going to do. I accept, totally. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, you say all that effing stuff. I can't effing shoot you now, can I? And seen <laughs> <scene. laughs> the hat. The hat. Was great. You nailed Thank that.
0: You. Yeah. I just I just had to get maybe two or three words in there just
1: right. And I love ya. you. Get, that was good, I too. I love you. Yeah. You okay. got a foundation I, I, there to work on. Take that to rehearsals.
0: <laughs> that's what I really need to develop. You're right. I love your British accent guy, Josh. It's always- Was that British? Super, well, I mean, that's what you're doing. It's always super gruff and super rushed, whether the yeah. guy's talking like that or not. You just go fast. That's the key. <laughs>
1: I know your tricks. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, October 17. What does that mean? What could that possibly mean? Uh huh. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks.
0: Who do you think I am at all, Mom?
1: Can you not know, share anything about what's happened? Is there no feeling in you? You have this impossible image of me. Seems like the whole world has turned upside down.
0: That's from the trailer for the new God's Creatures, co-directed by Anna Rose Holmer and Celia Davis. It stars Emily Watson and is currently playing in limited release and available on demand. Holmer, as we noted earlier, a former Golden Brick winner here on film spotting for her 2015 debut feature, The Fit's. Golden Brick, our award for the Overlooked Film of the Year from a new or emerging director. Davis was the editor and co-writer of The Fits. The film is set in a small Irish fishing village. Watson plays Eileen, a mother who is torn between loyalty to her community and to her son. You refer to him in your review, Josh, as her prodigal son, and that definitely is the appropriate terminology there. The son, Brian, is played by Paul Meskel. One of the standout elements of The Fits was the score, percussive and propulsive it helped establish the film's unnerving tone that mirrored the anxiety that its central character tony was experiencing you note in your review josh that god's creatures doesn't have the metaphysical dynamism of the fits but where it does share similarities with the earlier film it's in that use of sound and song please expand
1: yeah and maybe this isn't a fair way to come at this movie I think we both have this instinct when it is the follow up from a filmmaker whose first film we appreciate is looking at it through that lens but particularly here with Davis taking on a more prominent creative role as well so we should spend time on other things that the movie has but this is kind of where I instinctively started and it was surprising at first how different this felt and then I did remember that music in The fits and saw how crucial music was in a more naturalistic way here because it is a part of this community, right? I think we see um, this uh, character we come to know, Sarah, played by Aisling Franchosi, we see her singing at A Wake. I think is the first time. And there are a couple other moments where she sings and song is just a part of this communal life. And so I recognize that that was one thread that did seem to be shared by the two films uh, because otherwise it's pretty distinct. I don't know. Was that, was that your experience kind of looking for those connections and and seeing what you could find and maybe not finding quite as many as you expected? I
0: didn't go down that path so much. And that's because I think The Fits* is a film that while I certainly really enjoyed it, it was, as we've noted here multiple times, our golden brick winner. And it was for a reason. I only did see it once and it's been seven years. So it wasn't really in my mind too much, Josh, as I watched this film. But I think your point is well taken as I recall that film and that note about maybe how it doesn't have that metaphysical aspect to it, maybe not quite as dynamic in some of its visual flourishes. There are still a lot of moments in the film that remind me of the fits in terms of them replicating or suggesting almost an out-of-body experience. Mm. And the scene of this film, the standout scene of this film, I think this is one that we both really appreciated, is such a scene. And it is a scene that also heavily relies on song and singing.
1: If I'm remembering correctly, Sarah, played by Franchosi, is leading the community. They're singing at the beginning of a fishing day, sending everyone off, uh, sort of uh, wishing them good fortune. And she sings a part of the Catholic hymn, Here I Am, Lord. And what's remarkable, you mentioned the sound design, Adam, is how they work it into this moment. Because you hear everyone at first. It's this chorus. And then the other voices fall away as the camera finds Sarah, and you hear her singing clear as a bell.
0: I will go, Lord, if you lead me, I will hold your people in my heart.
1: This is where it does become out of body. And I think it's tied to, when the camera cuts to Emily Watson's character, Eileen and how she is experiencing that, because not to give anything away, but there's a dawning awareness sort of in the Eileen character. And this is maybe that moment where it is out of body in a sense that the denial is starting to break down and she's starting to see things from another perspective. And then just when you're being enveloped in Franchosi's voice, they have this thundercloud come, the rain pour down, and it kind of washes everything out. So it's a really dramatic aesthetic flourish in a movie that is otherwise fairly hushed and has a quiet dread underlying it. I think it works. I don't think it's too big of a flourish. Um, I think it fits nicely within the rest of the film.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. With sound and cinematography, Homer and Davis devise some relatively subtle but potent moments that isolate their characters against communal spaces. Spaces within an all too cozy village where that community as we see can be one's blessing or curse. And this is the scene, the best scene in the film, but it's not the only scene like it in the film in terms of that use of imagery and sound design. But this one is such a glorious contradiction that I think encapsulates the entire film and some of the thematic ideas it's wrestling with. It's at once this emphatic assertion Of her individuality, the camera focusing on her, her voice becoming, it's already the dominant voice in the scene, or it seems to be anyway, and Franchosi, of course, has a beautiful voice on top of it, and then as the camera and the sound design come together, it becomes all about her, and you're right, it is Eileen's point of view, I think, only hearing that voice, but it's as if Franchosi's character is asserting herself, but Any sense of triumph or any kind of declaration of her personhood is overwhelmed completely in that moment by a feeling of alienation, by loneliness, despite the characters she's surrounded by. Again, that that use of sound and the camera evokes all of that
1: and just to say another quick word about Franchosia, we've mentioned her a number of times but uh, i didn't realize until later was looking up some of the credits and so forth that i had seen her before in jennifer kent's the nightingale where she actually sings has a, a scene or two singing there as well i think i would come away from this film again if i didn't have that lens of it being anna rose homer's sophomore film and just went in blank that what i would have come out was wow this is a supporting performance that needs to be remembered at the end of the year. It Mm -hmm. very much, this narrative builds towards her, but Sarah as a character is caught in the middle of this family storm uh, and, and almost grabs the movie by the shoulders and makes it her own. That's partly in terms of the narrative, but I also think it's very much because of the performance. She has a great monologue about the ghosts living in these houses in this village that is quite stirring as well. And of course, You know, Emily Watson, fantastic, so sturdy, this panic conscience that's rising in her character's eyes. So two really strong performances in the movie that
0: I don't want to let go overlooked. Fran she's one of those actresses now just with those two performances where I feel like she can do just about anything. She's going to elevate any project that she's part of. And Watson, too, is someone... It's easy to take for granted as an actress, but in particular, what's so interesting to watch here is the way she changes, the way her character changes in subtle ways when her son, Brian, returns home. The frequency with which she smiles, whereas before we didn't see that so much, but just a warmth that sort of seems to exude from her body. Everything about her physical stature and position and presence changes when she's around him. Mm. And the movie doesn't suggest anything nefarious or anything in their relationship that might be improper. This is simply a mother who clearly loves her son and puts him on a pedestal And wants to, like a lot of moms and a lot of dads, she is willing to overlook a lot of problems in order to keep that son Mm -hmm. or daughter on that pedestal. And this is one of those films that is about those types of compromises, the compromises with consequences. You know, she's one type of person we see at the beginning of the film who... When put in certain situations, doesn't seem to be one who would bend the rules too much. And yet, when it comes to her son, little decisions that add up into <laughs> bigger problems, those, those things start to mount as the film goes on. And I mentioned that that scene that we're talking about, the singing scene with Francosi, is not the only one. There's at least one other moment that caught my eye in my ear early on in this film. Wonderful theatrical touch where Brian returns. It's the scene where they are at a pub and they're having a wake really for a young man who has died at sea. And Emily Watson is holding her grandson, holding the baby of her daughter. And she puts the baby down and she sort of, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's been a few weeks since I saw this film, she puts the baby down by sort of leaning out of frame, like leaning down below the frame. And it catches your eye because it's a little bit of an awkward bit of blocking. It's not something you would normally see. But what's happening in the background is these men are at the pub and they're, they're at the bar and they're, they're singing. And when we're focused on Watson, the men in the background singing isn't the loudest thing that's dominating the design. But as soon as she bends down and puts the baby down, the camera then starts to move towards the men. That then becomes the dominant sound in the room. So again, this this idea of community and individuals and using the sound to isolate characters and isolate sounds within the space is a technique that they're applying here. And as I said, it has such thematic resonance with this film because I think the contradiction I mentioned that is evoked in that scene, the individual against the community, the community against the individual is so at the heart of this film, it's almost a throwaway line, but it's something so remarkable. If you notice it, or if you, you do hear it, it stays with you. It did for me. They're talking about the man who died at sea and a character just kind of casually mentions the fact that nobody in the village, the fishermen, they don't learn how to swim. Mm, They don't mm -hmm. learn how to swim. Because they consider it bad luck. If someone falls overboard or someone ends up in the water, which is going to happen when you make your living at sea and you are encountering that struggle daily. The fear is, is that if you know how to swim, when a man's drowning, you might dive in and try to save them. And you want to talk about a metaphor for the entire film. Sure. What happens to that son, it's almost like a sacrifice to the community, right? To the village. It's something that just happens that when it does, you give up that person to the water. You give up that person to God, whatever it is to maintain your way of life. And I'm not suggesting that the men aren't upset about it or they don't try in some way to maybe save a man when he ends up in the water. But nevertheless, we don't see it in the film, but you know that the the image itself ultimately is if if they're not going to get in the water and try to save them, it's one person struggling in the water and a bunch of other people looking on and just watching and waiting for the inevitable to happen. And that completely foreshadows that idea, that that image in your head that's described just by setting up that notion of bad luck foreshadows the entire film in Franchois' circumstances.
1: Yeah, and I think that connects with why I describe this as having a quiet dread. And it's almost, if it were nudged... As you were describing that, you know, you could push it, nudge it a little bit further and say this is a cult in some way. And it doesn't go in that direction at all. But there's some of those undertones so that there's almost this sinister element at play. And this is a much more personal, psychological exploration than what those would describe. But I think that gives you some sense of um, the danger that is also at the edges of what's going on here.
0: God's Creatures is currently playing in limited release and is available on demand. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd,
1: Adam is at filmspotting and I'm at Larson on film. And at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll, which asks you to choose just one. Kate Blanchett or Tilda Swinton to order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop and to access ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter. And for the first time all in one place, the entire film spotting archive. Yes, that goes back to 2005. Join the film spotting family at filmspotting.supportingcast.fm. Yep. That is a new place to go. So I'll say it again. That's filmspotting.supportingcast.fm.
0: FM. Out on digital this weekend. To use your term, Josh, a reheat of the Grizzly Hellraiser franchise from director David Bruckner. He did 2020's The Night House with Rebecca Hall. Also out in limited release is Ruben Oslin's palm door-winning triangle of sadness in wide release. Oh, our friend from Letterboxd and Trivia Spotting Fame, Mitchell Beaupre, is so excited. Lyle <laughs> Lyle crocodile. Is out. I hope it can live up to their expectations. David O. Russell's Amsterdam is also out, an ensemble crime caper with a huge ensemble. We will probably talk about that next week on the show. We're definitely eventually going to get to Triangle of Sadness, and we are going to give a full review next week for sure to Todd Fields' Tar, starring Kate Blanchett, not Tilda Swinton. It's out limited, including in Chicago on October 14th.
1: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's filmspottingfamily.com.